Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Last week, Lynchburg was just doing its best to combat global warming, and so we weren't able to meet together. But uh, it's good to be back together with you. I'm kind of out of it, I think. I, every time I miss a week, I, I just seem like I don't know what's going on. So uh, some of you may say, well, that's no, nothing new. So uh, that's all right. If you are uh, new with us and you'd like your little one to be in an age-appropriate grade up through grade four, you can dismiss those little ones now to their teacher in the foyer. And we'd love to have you uh, participate with that way, or you can keep your child with you if you'd like, as we love kids. For the rest of you, if you'd like, turn to, in your copy of God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. God's plans for a healthy church is our general study as we work our way through 1 and 2 Corinthians. Conduct in the church is our more specific study. As Paul moves into this section of the scriptures, if you're new with us today, we're going to return to 1 Corinthians 11. It's our second stop in these first 16 verses, and these are dealing with the role of women in the church. This specific topic is part of a general topic of church conduct, which goes all the way through the end of chapter 14. So we'll, t- we'll touch on a number of topics as Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit to guide the church both then and now in things that should and should not go on inside the church assembly, and particularly as the church meets together. That's exactly where Paul is headed as he talks about these things here today. I'd like if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to start in verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse 16. The Lord willing, we will complete those verses today. Starting in verse 1, be imitators. I'm going to read in the New American Standard. You can find that in some of the chairs in front of you, or just reading your copy of God's Word, I'll give you some verse cues to uh, to stay along, and hopefully this is not your first time in the Word today, you're starving this morning, if it is, that you will spend time each day of the week in the Word. You can find a Bible reading calendar there in the welcome table out on the foyer. Grab that if you would. That's what I use as my daily Bible reading guide. You can use that. Many even Berean use that to take you through the Bible in a year, and then each year just come back and be enriched all the more as you become more familiar with His Word. Let's read together, uh, as is our habit. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Verse 2, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Verse 3, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Verse 4, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Verse 5, But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Verse 6. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Verse 8. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Verse 10, therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Verse 11, however, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Verse 12, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Verse 15, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. 
for her hair is given to her for a covering. Verse 16, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's stop right there. Now, as we noted last time, uh, the passage and those connected to it are some of the more difficult passages in 1 Corinthians to deal with and to teach through. It's not because they're complex, although they initially sound like they're very complex. They really are not. But really because our culture has moved so far away from the instruction presented here and the culture has salted the church. The wording here, the passages deal with the roles of men and women in the church. The ideas here are foreign to our modern culture, even our culture in the church, and even seems hostile if you read it uh, in some ways as they ring out in an atmosphere of political correctness. So the whole thing gets dismissed as irrelevant. Uh, the church, the modern church has really embraced uh, many times the opposite of much of this teaching, and that's now considered to be the standard. So as we bring these, though, we fly right in the face, if you will, of what has been established now in the church and in the culture for many years. Now, after our introductory time last time, we made it through verse 6. So we're going to take just a couple of minutes and recap some of that teaching because it has been two weeks since we were in it. So we'll look back at it and then that will launch us into the remaining 11 verses. Look, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Paul says this. He, he starts the section. He says, be imitators. That's where we get our English word mimics. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And we saw that it's likely that Paul is starting his next thought with this reminder. There's a number of thoughts there, and perhaps this should be tagged on to the last of chapter 10. Uh, I think that it's right where it should be. I think that they got this correct. And the reason why I say that is he follows up in verse 2, and he says this. Now I praise you because you remember me. And once again, that's the same word again in different form. You remember me. It's a verb form up above. It's a noun form, but it's the verb or noun form of the word mimic. So Paul starts with that word and then in verse 2 says, I praise you because you really do mimic me or you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. In other words, Paul says, you know, I taught you for 18 months. You really are trying to imitate me, which is what you should be doing. Paul is saying this, I follow Christ, this is the mind of Christ, so continue to follow me. And then he says in verse 3, but I want you to understand. So that but there tells us that there's something going on that even though Paul starts with a compliment, there's something going on he has to take care of. So in other words, there's a problem. I want you to go over this uh, with me again. I'm going to explain this to you again so that you can indeed follow Christ in this matter. Now look at verse, back at verse 2. I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. So Paul starts with praise. I commend you, he says. He starts with a compliment. Uh, you are mimicking me. There, is many, there are many things that you are doing that are exactly what I taught you to do and, what, and, of course, the way that I live myself, Paul says. So you're mimicking me. And that word tradition simply refers to, that's the body of teaching Paul passed on to his church uh, in the time he was with them. You remember me. You remember the traditions. Much of this, these things are still with you, and you're still doing them. Now, these are not man-made laws. These are not preferences. This is not legalism that's going to supersede Scripture. Paul is commenting uh, to them and saying to them, I commend you uh, for holding on to the teaching that I've given you. So uh, just to confirm that, it says that they, the traditions were delivered at a past time. So that the idea there is I gave these to you back in that time where we were together. You, I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I past tense, delivered them to you. I was with you. I gave them to you. You're holding on to much of what I gave you. Now, whether they had become forgetful hearers, uh, or maybe they were, as we saw in chapter 3, infants in Christ still, 
and back when he was pastoring them, and they're still infants now, and not able to handle the teaching. Uh, whatever the case, Paul's going to have to address an issue that's part of the body of teaching for every believer. And it has to do with the role of women in the church and the authority and submission that goes along with that. And although he's going to address dress and clothing, that is not the tradition that he has in mind. He's going to use it as an illustration to help them understand this uh, submission and authority. Now, when we looked at verse 3, we saw that this verse is really the key that unlocks these 16 verses. So look there in verse 3, if you would. Paul says this, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So we saw Paul really is laying down a model of authority and submission. And this becomes the key, and we can kind of come back here and spin off of this every time uh, we see an issue that Paul's addressing. This is the key, uh, importantly because it includes two of the three persons of the Trinity, so it really has no negative connotations. All the way through, there's nothing negative here. Paul just expresses this is how the Lord has set it up. He's going to give some instructions governing a local issue, but in doing that, he's going to lay down an authority and a submission model, and this is the tradition that he's going to be speaking of. And then Paul will identify seven basic points that really illustrate that model and govern the conduct of the church. So he's going to tell them what that main model is. He's going to give some points for them to understand how that's supposed to work out in this Corinthian church. But in light of all that very specific contextual issues that deal with Corinth, we come away with some general understanding of how this authority and submission is supposed to work. Paul says, I need you, he says, I want you to understand. I need you to understand this. I don't want you to be ignorant on these issues, Paul says. There's authority and submission everywhere. God set it up that way. First one, we see Christ is the head of every man. That's the word kephale, the Greek word. It's a, it's a biological head. It'll be used that way as we work our way through the actual physical head on top of the shoulders. And we'll also see where wearing something on it is a sign of authority. But here it's being used in particular as a metaphor. I think that's just obvious. Christ is the head of every man. Uh, so it's a metaphorical uh, head. And that's, uh, it just means ruler or authority. The, what tells, uh, that's what tells the body what to do. It's what tells the man what to do. And here it's not just referring to the church. Christ is the head of the church, but that's not the limit of his headship. Uh, he also rules over every man. Every man, Paul says. Not just the church, not just a few uh, some are, obe are obedient, and those are believers, and that would be the church, and certainly Christ is the head of the church and those who are believers. Uh, some men don't acknowledge his rule. That's the world. He's still head of them. Someday there will be a judgment for all those who have not come up under his authority because he has the right to judge. But Paul uh, says very clearly, Christ is the head of every man. And so that's those who believe. That's those who don't believe. That's everyone. Now, the next thing Paul would have them know is that man is the head of a woman. So he sticks that right in their necks, and obviously that's the place where they're having some trouble. And so Paul wants to bring this up as well. Paul's first point, really, it concerns conduct within the church, which is Paul's topic here in this passage. It concerns the relationship at home. It concerns uh, the, uh, the relationship in the church. It's going to cover a very wide uh, topic, but it's going to all focus down to what's supposed to be the, the uh, created order for uh, things that go on in the world. Now, obviously, the place where they're having trouble is here, and it concerns conduct. And it concerns relationships. And this was Paul's first point. And, and it's this. This is the plan God set up. Paul says it follows a pattern. Uh, it's not departing from any pattern that God has set up already. The relationship between Christ and man, there is authority and submission. And the relationship between men and women, there is authority and submission. And the last part of the verse, Paul says, in the relationship between Christ and God, there is authority and submission. So the man is the head of the woman. So Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman. And 
And that's not new teaching for, uh, from Paul to believers in the New Testament. It's the same teaching he's given them. Paul's focus is on conduct in the church. The man must recognize that God has given him authority and he has to accept that and lead. And the woman must realize in her relationship at home and in her relationship in the church, she's been given the place of submission. Now, it's a simple statement by Paul. It's, it's not intended to inflame. It's not intended to create some kind of uh, big explosion. He wants to make sure they know what they need to know. It's part of the traditions. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. This is how the Lord has set it up. And with this statement, he would receive some strong responses, just like today. So in order to help moderate that, he sandwiches that very important statement that man is the head of a woman, and that's really the focus of his teaching, between Christ is the head of every man, that's the first one, and, and God is the head of Christ. And so you can see Paul's idea here, if there's already a problem in Corinth, if there's already going to stir up a problem uh, in the modern church to receive this teaching about a man and a woman, then they're going to have to pause, they're going to have to figure out and think about this fact that right between both of those foundational theological premises that must be true is this other one, which is also true. They're just put in there in an order that Paul wants them to understand, and they're all true statements. Now look at verses 4 through 7, if you would. Here we really get into the local issue that's going on in Corinth. Verses 4 through 7, every man who has something on his head while praying and prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For verse 6, a woman does, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, or her head shaved, let her cover her head. So stop right there. Paul's addressing a pattern of behavior in the church manifested by what's being worn or not worn to worship services. What's going on in the worship service? And Paul's using a local custom to illustrate the main problem. And the main problem appears to be the attitude of those involved. And if we remember Paul's key statement, as we just said in verse 3, where he's put all those things in order, then we can understand that his addressing of this issue is to point out the problem with conduct in the church of which this manifestation of dress is only a symptom, okay? Now, what it amounted to was this. In the society in Corinth, women were, uh, who were proper, women who were modest, women who wanted to make a statement publicly, visibly about their submission to their husbands and their submission in the church, submitted to that role that was assigned to them in their society, wore a head covering as a symbol of their submission. That was a symbol that was there at the time to be veiled. There doesn't appear to be, as we, as we look through history, there's no uh, consistency concerning head coverings in Greek or Roman fashion. They came in, they come out, fashions and dress change over time just like they do today. There's not some significance about this head covering in Corinth that was universal across the board. It's just simply what's going on here in Corinth. But it illustrates Paul's point that he wants to make with the church. And remember, dress is very cultural. It's part of the freedom that we have in Christ. And what is proper in one place perhaps will not be proper in another place, and those things vary. What was proper here, though, within the fellowship of the Corinthian church was that women who submitted to their role in the church indicated that by what they wore. And Paul's point here is that women should conform in matters of dress to that which society says marks the, uh, are the marks of a modest, submissive woman. Now, obviously, uh, the reason why he has to bring this up is there appears to be a group of women who are, who are or have thrown off this teaching of submission. And perhaps their background is the, is the Roman feminist movement, you know, where women of Rome, uh, Roman culture would shave their heads dressed like a man. But, but Paul doesn't mention that. He doesn't say anything about that. So I don't think we should kind of key on that, particularly as that's the problem or that's the case going on in Corinth. 
Uh, the problem in the Corinthian church was just that some women had decided to dispense with a head covering during worship in order to make a statement that they could have authority, that they could uh, have authority over men, perhaps. And Paul's emphasis is that that should not be done. He doesn't appear to be making a universal statement on women wearing head coverings during worship, uh, but he will make a universal statement on what head coverings indicated and what some of these women were throwing off, and that was the submission to men. Now look at the verses individually. Let's look at verse 4, if you would. Uh, every man who has something on his head, that's a physical head now. We can kind of start to parse this out. Stick with me. Every man who has something on his head, that's a physical head, while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. And that's a metaphorical head. And his head is, verse 3, Christ. Okay? So he's disgracing his head by wearing something over his head. Now again, many Corinth praying with something on their heads appears to have become a custom of the time. The Jews beginning in about the 4th century began doing that as well. Putting a shawl over, or a prayer shawl over their head. Uh, a hamaka on the back of their head. This is something that began to change over time. What was going on here is what Paul's addressing. Here in Corinth, the convention was that women wear a head covering and men do not. But the style had begun to change. And because Paul was addressing an attitude of unsubmissiveness at Corinth, he had to address what the style change was indicating. And that's what Paul's doing here. Now look at verse 5. But every woman who has her head, that's her physical head, uncovered while praying or prophesying, disgraces her head. And there's the metaphorical head. And her head is... Verse 3, the man, okay? Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ, okay? So we have a metaphorical head, that's the man. For she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaped. And that just seems to flow well with the text, and that's I think, just obvious, I think. Now look at verse 6. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her, head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if, she, but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Just pointing out the obvious fashion and what it indicated, all physical words for the word head. So if, it's, if, if a woman doesn't cover her head with that uh, prayer veil or shawl, let her also have her hair cut off of her head. Okay, so all physical heads. Uh, but if disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now. That word disgraceful is an important word. We see it in a number of different places that it deals with submission and authority in the church. Uh, the Greek adjective for feeling a fear of shame, something that you won't want to do because you, you would abhor that. Uh, and so that, if it says it's disgraceful, then this is, this is Paul's uh, point here. He says, listen, there's an internal witness that God provides about this head covering. There's a conscience-bearing witness here. Paul says, you know what I'm saying is true in your own heart. Paul says it this way, in the same way that as he speaks to women, you dislike the idea of being bald in the same way that, in that same way, you should avoid throwing off the symbol of submission. Paul says, listen, if, if, if it's disgraceful for you to have your hair cut off, then realize that there should be a covering there, and that covering indicates your submission to men. Now, Paul's getting to the main point of the entire passage, and here it is. It really isn't the direct point on whether or not the men in Corinth had departed from tradition of wearing something on their head or not. In the Greco-Roman culture, men were ordinarily short-haired, presumably uncovered. The women long-haired, but with their hair arranged in some way or up or whatever, sometimes covered, sometimes not covered. The problem was not what was going on in the outside by way of fashion. Fashions come and go. What was going on in the heart was what was important. And we can see a couple places, and I won't go back to all the places where we cross-referenced uh, this last time, but just this one in particular, because that really, I think, shores up our understanding of what Paul is saying here. Peter says this, your adornment, as he speaks to women in the church, your adornment must not be merely external. So, I mean, certainly be beautiful, certainly braid your hair, certainly decorate yourself, whatever it is. Just not that, not only that, not only braiding the hair, not only wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, 
But, verse 4, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So here, no mention of head coverings. doesn't say, you know, um, your adornment must not be merely external, make sure you have a, but make sure you have a veil on when you pray to show a sign of authority over your head. It doesn't say that, does it? It just says there's a way that you can dress that indicates that you understand where your position is as the Lord has created you in the unique way and the, and the jobs that he's given you, and that is the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable quality of gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And it goes on to say, as we get in verse 5, 6, and 7 there of 1 Peter, in submission to her husband. It uses actually that word. Now, there's no mention of head coverings, and, and Paul, Peter says, listen, this is how it's always been done. I mean, fashions come and go. He's not saying you have to wear some certain thing or refrain from wearing some certain thing. It's just you're going to indicate what's going on in the heart by what you put on. Now, obviously here in Corinth, the way they were dressing was making a statement about their relationship to their husbands and their relationship to the church and its functions. And a woman perhaps could be saying, you know, I'm praying, I'm prophesying in my own right. I'm not under my husband. Uh, nothing stops me from doing what I want in the church. I'm going to indicate that by how I dress. And Paul says that attitude isn't to be. And we looked at a number of other passages that helped us understand this authority and submission aspect of ministry. And Paul gets very specific. And in fact, in just a couple chapters, we're going to see some stuff in 1 Corinthians 14 that deal specifically with women and, the, and what they can do in the church. But this submission aspect of ministry is illustrated in a number of places. And the roles men and women have in the church. And all those uh, passages we looked at strongly oppose the very popular concept today in the modern church of women pastors and women elders. And so 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and following, uh, 1 Peter 3, 7 and following, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, uh, those are specific about what can be done. Now, we won't look at those again today. I was just going to direct you back to two weeks ago. You can look online and you can see those passages. We dealt with them more clearly and you can look at those very uh, specific statements and see what uh, the writers had to say. Some address clothing, but none mention head coverings. And so we know that's not uh, this, universal, this universal statement by Paul that every woman is going to wear a head covering in every church. That's not it. Uh, all are dressed to the actual conduct inside the church. All use similar language as Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11. All are very clear. Women are not to take the role of ruling the church or being teachers of men in the church. And so it just kind of all ducktails together very, very, very well. Now the reasons he gives for this order that God has set up that Paul reiterates in verse 3 are not cultural. He gives this order and he says, listen, this appeals to the created order. Man was created first and then woman. This appeals to the angels. The angels look on this and this is very important that this authority and submission be carried out in the church. He appeals to the fall. It was not men who were deceived, but women first who were deceived. He appeals to what's been taught by tradition in all the churches, which is what we're going to see at the end of this passage that we're looking at now. So it's not cultural issues. These are not, okay, this is a fashion, you need to avoid it, or this is a fashion, you need to put it on. He's not talking about those things. He's talking about authority and submission, and he covers all of those things, and he doesn't use, okay, this is what's in fashion in Corinth at the time. He says, created order, angels, uh, the fall, this is what's done in all the churches. These are the reasons why there's authority and submission. And this outward indication is just showing me, because people are reporting this to me, Paul says, of what's going on in the church, I'm going to address it with you. Now, Paul gets into this issue in Corinth, and he makes some important statements. He knows there's some trouble there because some have asked him the question, 
uh, perhaps they're feeling a little disquiet in their hearts as they look around at the church and they see some women taking some authority positions over men in the church and they see what that's beginning to happen and they're indicating that by they're not wearing uh, that covering anymore that they used to wear in Corinth and so Paul's going to address it. Perhaps some women are trying to take leadership over men. Maybe there's a movement to, to indicate an independence by throwing off the outward indication of submission. Uh, there's a number of different ways you could play that, but some are trying perhaps to preach or prophesy because Paul brings that up later in chapter 14 and says that's not to be done. And so, so they ask Paul, and so he's going to address this head covering issue. And not because that's the issue, but because that is indicative of the issue that's going on in Corinth. Paul says, I'm going to give you this series of points based on the understanding that the relationship of men and women in marriage and in the church is founded on the very same principles, and we've already seen two of them. Let's look at the rest. Paul reminds them, he says, if you want to argue about this, you're not going to be arguing with me. Listen, this is the revelation of God. Uh, what I'm saying is the commandment of God from verse 3. It's how he set it all up. There's, there's no inequality here. There's no inferiority here. It's just roles that God has set up. Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. That's how God set it up. There's no inferiority. There's no superiority. There's no inequality. It's just the way the Lord has set it up. Now look at verse 7, if you would, and Paul's going to clarify verses 4 and 5 in verse 7. Look at the first part of verse 7, really. He says, for a man ought not to have his head covered, since he's the image and glory of God. Now this is Paul's point number 3. You can find this in your notes on the back of your bulletin. This is how God sees it. Point 3, this is how God sees it. Paul's main emphasis does not seem to be the man. But here he uses head in order to refer to physical head, and he substitutes the metaphorical head with God. He says, for man ought not to have his head covered, physical head, since he is the image and glory of God, which is his, his metaphorical head. Now, in verse 4 he said, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now, when he says in verse 7, that man is the image and glory of God. He's re referencing the creation story where we read that God formed man out of the dust and formed him in his own image. And later in chapter 2, we see that Eve was formed from Adam's rib and a special help mate for Adam. Eve had a unique place. Paul says, the last part of verse 7, the woman is the glory of man. Now, just to clarify, the woman was not made in the image of man. She was made, as we see in Genesis chapter 1, in the image of God, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, though, that she is the glory of man. And just to pause there for a second, I really think, men, that is a very wonderful way to esteem your wife and women in general. And that's a really great balance that Paul brings here, okay? And as you bring, you bring the correct attitude that you esteem that woman that the Lord has given you in your life, and you esteem all women in general as the glory of men, you befit her station in that way, because that's how the Lord looks at it, see? And that's the proper way to think about her. And, and might I add, uh, many of you are far from that as you talk about your wives, among other men. She's not your servant. She's not someone you dis disrespect or speak harshly about because she is your glory. Because when you do that, when you disrespect, you speak harshly, you look at her as your servant, you ignore the fact that uh, the Lord says that she is your glory, you really reveal that you know nothing as you should know about that relationship the Lord's given to you. You debase yourself and your discernment and make it obvious that you haven't understood at all what the Lord has done as he created a helpmate for you. And you're not functioning the way Christ would have you function as the head. Let's just be clear. If you're going to be the head, you're going to look at your wife as the glory of man because she stands in a relationship to you as does no one else. 
okay? She is your glory. The Lord has given her to you as a helpmate. That is her unique position. And so once again, it's not Paul's intent to inflame. Just simply state a divine design. The woman is the glory of man. Here it is. She's not subordinate. She's not inferior. She's not less in spiritual worth. She's not less in intelligence. She's not less in spirituality. She has a unique position, a function in God's order, submitting to her husband and to the leadership role of the man in the church. But she is marvelous, and she is the glory of man. Now, let's look at Paul's fourth point as he kind of helps them understand the inappropriateness of really throwing off these roles, which has been indicated by what's going on on the outside here at the church. Some of the women in the church indicate that by really refusing to worship with her head covered. Now, look at verse 8, if you would. For a man does not originate from the woman, but the woman from the man. And that's Paul's point number four. The created order tells us that's how it's supposed to be. This authority and submission is illustrated by the created order. The reason why there is authority in the home and in the church is because of God's created order. God created man according to Genesis 2, and then he created woman from man. And I realize that these all interconnect, but Paul parses those out, so we're, we're going to do that as well and to make sure that we understand. Look at verse 9. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman, but woman for the man's sake. This is Paul's point number 5. It reflects the purposes of God. So this is how God sees it. That's point number three. It's, it's reflected in the creative order. That's point number four. Uh, point number five, it reflects the purposes of God. God has a purpose in doing this. His purpose for creating Eve was for Adam's benefit. And men, once again, that's a great way for you to esteem your wife. She's been given to you for your benefit. For his gain, for his help, for his sake. The authority and submission is illustrated by God's mind and his plan. God gave Eve to Adam. His days of loneliness were finished. What everything else in creation could never be for him, this beautiful fellow human of the opposite sex now is his glory. When he sees her, he says in Genesis 2, 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It must have been so amazing to him as he awakened from sleep that God had placed on him. And the words he said were really the first of if you will, millions of poems and love songs that really just reflect in some way what Adam understood so clearly when he awoke. All right, and we're going to have a coffee house on the 14th, and probably some of those love songs are going to be sang, and some of those poems are going to be spoken. But really, Adam did the first one, didn't he? He says, wow, this is the bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. God says, she's your glory. She's your helpmate. Esteem her that way. So that's just the first of many ways to reflect that. And in response, the Lord makes this statement in verse 24 of Genesis 2. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Why? Because the woman was made for man. Marriage is for most people, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's how God designed it. It's a very beautiful way. What was taken from man to make Eve is returned to him in the form of that perfect match. Okay? Just another way to look at the essence of marriage described so clearly for us. So, so points four and five are just obvious. And you'll notice this issue of authority is not cultural. It isn't based on the whims of men and women and whether or not they feel like following or whatever or submitting and whether or not they feel like the Holy Spirit's gifted them to do the preaching, so they're just going to do it. It doesn't really matter. Paul says, this is not cultural. What's cultural is this veiling and unveiling. And you're indicating that you're throwing off this authority by not wearing it. But that's not, those are not the issues Paul brings up, are they? It's the purposes of God. It's the created order that are the things, see? This is how God sees it. This is what he wants. 
Now, Paul's next point tells us it's not just because of God and the creative order and God's purposes, which are significant in themselves. There's another one, too. Look at verse 10, if you would, 1 Corinthians eleven ten. He says this, Therefore, the woman ought to have a, a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Point, Paul's point number six is the expectation of the angels. Okay, the symbol of authority on your head, just the symbol that you're submitting is this veil. But the idea of authority is because of the expectation of the angels. The symbol that was being thrown off to demonstrate a lack of submission, Paul says, needs to be there. It needs to reflect her submission to her husband, her metaphorical head, whose glory she is. Okay, just kind of pull them all together. Okay, and it needs to be there to reflect the authority that's in the church. And we saw last week, those issues are very closely related. related. The authority that's in the home, the authority that's in the church, very closely related there as the woman and the man are created to have different roles. Paul undoubtedly means that there is more to worship than the people in the congregation can see. That's always very important, I think, just as a footnote to this statement. That as you come into this building and you begin to worship together corporately, there's a lot more going on than what we can see on an individual basis in the plane that we can observe now. Holy angels are there, certainly in Corinth, they're here. Angels observe, participate, they understand creation, they understand God's purposes. They have watched the attitudes of mortal men since creation. Uh, They can tell what's going on in the minds of worshipers by their posture, by their attire. As it relates to Corinth, they've watched this throwing off of authority, and they've watched some of the women begin to exercise authority over men in the church. Angels observe believers, and they serve them. So Paul perhaps implies that we should in no way be inappropriate in bringing ourselves into subjection to the Lord's desires and commands and purposes by usurping his authority in some way. By doing what we want inside the church and doing what we think is right instead of what the angels expect, instead of what God's purpose is, instead of the created order, instead of the fact that it is how God sees it. See, And so the angels have that expectation that we're going to do what the master says. Why? Because we're in subjection to him. Christ is over every man, so that means he's the boss. And so we do what he says, and the angels expect that from the church. Not only are holy angels in the church when we come to worship and when Corinth would come to worship, demons are here too, unholy angels. They know the order of creation. They know some of the purposes of God and his instruction. Uh, There should be no reason to create a situation where they would have reason to mock God or criticize those who call themselves by his name and yet don't do what he says. So Paul just says, just because of the angels, they're there watching. Unholy angels are there. Don't give them a reason to mock God and say, see, even your people who are called by your name won't even do what you say. And the holy angels who fully expect us to obey because they obey without any question and fully expect us to be exactly the same way. We don't want to offend them either. So he says, listen, this authority and submission is not just a cultural issue. This isn't just here at Corinth. Okay, what you're doing here at Corinth is indicating the greater problem. The greater problem is that this is a created order This is God's purpose, this is the expectation of the angels, and this is what you do. So, uh, this very strong point Paul makes, very few words. So, to keep things in balance now, and I like this, to keep men from being overconfident and overbearing, the Holy Spirit carries Paul along to say this. He says in verse 11, look there with me if you would. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Just in case you're getting a little haughty, And get a little full of yourself, guys. Paul says this. In the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Inside the church, and what goes on here, understand this. 
Inside the Christian marriage, a man and a woman are closely knit together. And inside the Christian faith, they're closely knit together. In marriage, they are one flesh. In the church, they are one body in Jesus. She is his glory. She submits to his authority. But they're inseparably one. And this is really elevating women in Paul's time. Greek, Romans, even Jews had a very low evaluation of women. And although none of those verses 11 and 12 change what Paul has taught earlier about authority and submission. This is not changing anything he's already said about what goes on in the church and how it's supposed to go on. And nor is he going to change what he'll say later in other places on the roles of men and women in the church. It does change the understanding of the value of the one God chose to create from Adam. It elevates that value from where it was in the culture of the time. And women are an indispensable part of the common faith and the ministry of the church. That's why Paul says this. He wants to make sure they understand this. If you're going to accomplish what God wants inside the church, you're going to need both. They're indispensable. It's a lot to write, so I'll just pause here just for a second. We're going to look at verse 12. Paul says this in verse 12. Look there in your copy of God's Word. For... As the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. In Adam and Eve, Eve came from the rib of Adam. In subsequent men, they were born of a woman. So although the created order is important in the authority of the church, and the purposes of God are important in the authority of the church, the authority can't be overbearing. Men and women depend equally on each other and both depend on God. All things find their source, creation, authority, procreation, the church, everything find its source in God. But there is an order. Paul's not superseding anything he said before. He's not superseding anything that he gave Timothy to pass on to Ephesus. He's not superseding anything he's going to say in 1 Corinthians 14 about what can and what can't go on in the church and why. He's just saying, listen, when you understand all that, also understand that they're not independent. You are not independent of one another. And it's integral that all both be involved for the ministry of the church to be effective. Now, let's look at Paul's last point, verses 13 through 15. Just look there for your, if you would. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for covering. And I'm sure you can see this now, it's just obvious, but Paul's point number seven, the authority and submission symbolized in Corinth by a covering for, uh, for women is demonstrated, listen, here's the point, demonstrated by the differences in the physical makeup between men and women. It's demonstrated in the outward physical physiology, if you would, of a woman and a man. And that's Paul's point. Just judge for yourself. Doesn't it ob- isn't it obvious in general that way? It's fitting here in Corinth for a woman to throw off, is it fitting, Paul says, for a woman to throw off a symbol of her clothing in order to indicate she's not going to be in authority? No, Paul says no. Uh, not because of fashion, but because of, the, uh, but because of the attitude of some in the church. So Paul says, listen, preserve the natural sign God has given. And what are they? Typically, they're shorter hair for men, longer hair for women. And, you know, even men grow their hair out somewhat. There's still a huge physiological difference between the two. Paul says, listen, just as you see creation, you see the differences. And trying to confuse the sexes is really in view here. To look like a woman. For a man to grow his hair out and try to look like a woman, that's a dishonor to him. That's not what, uh, that's what Paul says is not to happen. Men really, the man really isn't in view here. It appears that Paul says a woman's femininity 
and beauty is enhanced by her long hair, which is given her naturally. It by itself is a symbol of authority and submission. And women cut their hair a little shorter, a little longer. That's not Paul's point, okay? Fashions come and go. Sometimes you wear it long, sometimes you wear it short. Sometimes men wear it a little longer, sometimes they wear it shorter. But there's no confusing a real man with a little bit longer hair between him and a woman, all right? He's ugly, she's beautiful, all right? No matter of hair cover, he's going to change that. He's, he looks, you know, rugged and she looks lovely, okay? And Paul just says, don't, conf- don't confuse those things. God has given us the natural physiology to indicate how this authority and submission works, okay? So he says, judge for yourselves. And that's a Greek verb, krino, aorist active imperative. So if Paul's going to give them a direct command, here it is. Do this. Look around you. Paul says, get busy and take some action. There are numerous examples of authority and submission. There are rules that God has set in place. Fashions are cultural. But the attitude that can be manifested by fashion isn't cultural. See, Fashion changes, and Paul's trying to push certain fashions uh, you know, he's not trying to take these certain fashions and push, put them on other churches. We've seen that. We've read those other passages. And in nowhere does he say, make sure you have a, a veil while you're, while you're in the church. He doesn't say that to anybody. He could say it to all of them. He had plenty of opportunity. Some of the same topics come up. But Paul's just dealing with Corinth here. But the overall attitude is church-wide. He says, these are the traditions I've passed down to you. These are the ones you're getting confused. This is stuff that's starting to go on. It doesn't need to go on. Okay. Throwing off the principles of authority can be demonstrated in a lot of different ways, certainly in dress, in demeanor, in conversation, all kinds of ways that you throw off the authority that's supposed to be inside the church. And you can manifest it, and Paul would equally deal with all of them, whether it's conversation, whether it's demeanor, whether it's dress, all of that. Fashions change. Paul isn't trying to push some certain fashion on other churches, as we've seen. He makes no mention of head coverings in other places. He doesn't instruct Timothy to give that requirement to the church in Ephesus. So Paul uses a local custom to reinforce universal principles that govern the roles of men and women in the home and in the church. Now look at verse 16. Paul just kind of sums this up. And every time we see this type of teaching, Paul kind of wraps it up at the end. We saw it in chapter 14. We're going to see that again, of course, in just a month or so. We saw it in 1 Timothy so you're going to see this, we saw it in Peter. Verse 16, look there in your copy of God's Word. But if one is inclined to be contentious, philonikos, Greek adjective for fond of strife or fond of arguing. <laughs> I, I was, many of you uh, have tw- a Twitter account, and I was just going through trending, things that were trending on Twitter yesterday. I don't know if any of you saw this, but uh, trending on qu- Twitter was, my clergy bio, hashtag my clergy bio. So I just clicked on it because I'm a clergy and uh, maybe I was going to ring in. Well, the top like 30 I looked at were all females. And every one of them <laughs> was being contentious about this issue. Almost all of them in this, the characters you can use on Twitter, were all being contentious about how they don't get any respect and how they, you know, uh, men are so backwards they don't understand that God's enabled them to do all kinds of And it was just like, wow, I'm, I'm going to do this tomorrow. <laughs> And that's exactly what's going on today. It's, it's still very active. So I didn't ring in with my clergy bio because I'm sure it would have been very offensive. And in fact, I was thinking about being very offensive to the 30 Twitters that were already out there. And I just decided that probably wasn't helpful to the whole situation. So bottom line is this, see, Paul says, if one's inclined to be contentious, if, if you're fond of strife, if you're fond of arguing, we have no other practice. In other words, the roles of authority and submission, this is part of the tradition I handed down to you and the other churches I have planted. And, and as we saw, the churches Peter was writing to and the ones Timothy was overseeing, 
Okay, they all have the exact same authority and submission principles set up. I'm not giving anything else to anybody else. The same tradition is to the whole church. Okay? Nor have, he says, the churches of God. This is what we've given out. These are the reasons why they're there. What's going on in Corinth is not appropriate. Not because necessarily the veil is the important thing or not the important thing. What's important is the authority and submission that isn't going on. And we know that this was a problem because Paul comes back in just two chapters and he's going to deal specifically with what's going on in an active church service with what ladies or some ladies are doing. So as Paul gets word and it strikes his ear from Corinth of what's going on there and some are very uncomfortable with what's happening and watching what's being indicated by the throwing off of the veil, what they're really concerned about is what's going on in the church service and what some women are doing. And so it's not taking over the whole church. It's not, you know, church-wide and now they've accepted, okay, we're going to have a female elder. It's just what's going on now. Paul's going to nip it. And he's going to be very specific as we get to chapter 14 to say, and these things are not to happen. Okay? So that's the issue. Once again, not a passage I would pick out and just say, okay, today we're going to talk about this. Because there's no, there's no upside for me on this. Okay? The only upside for me is to clearly give you God's word, allow that to sink in. You begin to make changes in your own life or your own attitude. I don't know how it, you will interact with it. I don't know where you are in this whole process and what you've thought about and, and perhaps who you follow as a lady and who you listen to. You may have to reevaluate that whole thing because of what's going on there is not uh, in, a, in alignment with what we see in the scriptures about what's allowed. So there's a lot of places where the Lord can make application through his Holy Spirit, and I don't pretend to know all of them, but the Holy Spirit is able. The Lord desires for us to come into submission to his word. Let's bow in prayer. We to be dismissed here. We've got a few announcements that need to uh, be given, so we'll leave some time for that. Lord, we thank you today for our time this morning. It's been fun, really, to wrestle with something very much at the forefront of, of the modern church culture, and obviously has uh, been that way since the early church. It's very, it's very sensible teaching, easy to apply. As easy to apply, if you will, as looking into the mirror in the morning and really seeing what's being indicated. Passions come and go, but the heart can be reflected in what's on the outside. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to and help our ladies to understand that and really to make uh, changes as you direct them. I thank you that we have a church full of very modest very wonderful women who understand their very valuable role here. I thank you for uh, what's going on downstairs. Many of those positions filled by our ladies, and they are instructing a new generation and discipling a new generation of believers. I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that we don't, in general, have the issues that Paul has to deal with. But Lord, we know that there are always ways that we can change and improve. You know the attitudes of the heart and your word opens us up and exposes the faulty parts and then gives us the right parts to put in. And Lord, I just pray that you'll just do that continually here with us and allow us to be continually in your word that we might uh, understand uh, how clear this teaching is and how important it is as it relates to our testimony. Lord, these are principles that we see that Paul gave to Corinth, but certainly will be carried out as we submit uh, to the Holy Spirit. And so for your great mercy on us, that we're not consumed, and for your great love for us, as you continually uh, give us your Holy Spirit to empower us to do the things that we need to do, Lord, we're so grateful. We're grateful for the testimony you've allowed us to have. Help us to be effective in, uh, around those that you have given us that don't know you. Help us to be effective with our families, some of the hardest ground sometimes to plow up. Lord, I pray that you'll go before us and make ears that are 
quick to hear, maybe situations that open up the heart as a season of the soul. Many of us have unsaved loved ones that we've prayed for for so long and labored so long and have endured so much from. Lord, I pray that you'll, again, in your great mercy, give them opportunity to hear and help them to hear and respond. That our burden, which is not even as great as yours, but our burden for their lostness can be alleviated. And Father, for those who sit here who haven't come to a right relationship with you through uh, your son Jesus, Father, I pray that you will today, help today be the day, confess, repent, and believe. Confess that Jesus is Lord, believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, and you shall be saved. Very simple. If you'd like to do that today, before you leave, take that card of response in the, in the chair in front of you. Indicate you'd like to pray to receive Christ. You'd like to know more about a relationship with Christ. Give that to me before you go or leave it on the seat behind you. We'll pick it up and we'll be in touch with you. And for the rest of us, Father, as we respond, help us to really solidify those things in our mind about what we need to do, how we need to follow you more closely. Perhaps we need to uh, be baptized and follow in, in biblical baptism. Perhaps we I need to find a place to serve. We've just kind of been observing and not plugging in. Or maybe we plugged in before, but we've been idle now. Many needs, many places to plug in. Lord, I pray that you'll give us workers for the harvest amongst those who are here. And Lord, as we go into this evening service, as a PTA service, a time of communion, a time of singing, and a time of testimony, Lord, let your name be magnified. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he's redeemed from the hand of the enemy. So grateful for that. We pray this in the name of your Son, of course, whom we long to see. And all God's people said, Amen.